I'm glad that we ended by uh, singing about the Trinity because it was one of the questions that came up last week as we were working through the material about how do I explain the Trinity to somebody who's not familiar with the Bible? And it actually came up in all three services, and you might remember my response was, um, it, it's a very difficult thing to explain the Trinity to people who are believers and are familiar with the Bible, let alone to those who have no familiarity with the Bible. So uh, over the course of the week, different people were texting and sending me information and dropping notes off in my box and saying, here's ideas on how you can explain the Trinity. And one of the best ones that came to me actually came from Bruce Edwards, and Bruce shared this thought that came to him from a theologian. Um, he said, when you think of the Trinity, perhaps the best way you could explain it to someone who's not familiar with the Bible is to think of H2O. And when we think of water, we can think of the three elements. We think of steam and ice and the liquid form. Yet they're all the exact same element. They have different functions and they're seen in different components, but they're still the exact same element of H2O. So if you have someone like that in your life who's trying to get their brain around, how do I understand the Trinity? Well, it is a very complicated subject. It's a difficult thing to explain, but just on a base level, if you're looking for an easy analogy, maybe that one will help you. In light of that, um, you know, last week we introduced the concept of texting in questions during the service, and we do that and have done that for four years during the Saturday night service, but last week we did that. We're going to continue that today. So if you reached in your bulletin maybe already and pulled out your notes, you saw there's a phone number in there. It's a Google phone number. We're not tracking your number when you send your questions in. It's just a number that you can use during the service as questions pop in your mind, and go ahead and send them in, and then the guys will put them up, um, maybe three or four of them if we can get to them up on the screen. And we'll do that before we wrap up today, especially in light of what we're talking about this morning. I want you to know that of all the questions that came in this last week, we couldn't get to them all. And so what Pastor Rich and I did is we sat down and we divvied up the questions and we wrote back to people and responded to their questions. So we didn't leave people hanging. And if you send some in, we'll respond to yours as well. But this morning, we're going to be talking about Satan. And we're talking about demons, the the fallen angels, and how that relates to the creation story. How does that relate to who God declares me to be? And it's all part of this study of His story. Well, because we're talking about Satan, we want to be really careful that we don't give too much preeminence to Satan because he was defeated at the cross. Right, church? All right. So we know he's powerful. We know he's cunning. And he's, he's very quick to act. And we'll discover a lot of that this morning. But we also recognize that he's been defeated by the King of Kings. And so we have reason to celebrate. And we want to keep that in perspective as we go into prayer right now, that God would help us keep that in check as we work through this this morning. Would you join me in prayer? Father, I thank you for these who have willingly taken their time to be here this morning, those who are watching online right now, many who can't be here that wanted to. And find themselves prohibited maybe by travel conditions or perhaps sick and and laying in bed, um, not able to get up. Father, for each of us, wherever we're at in this scheme, I I pray that you would speak to us now and especially put your blessing on us. For these in this auditorium that study now, that have willingly stepped out in zero-degree weather, not because anybody made them, but because they willingly want to be here, God, I, I pray that your blessing would rest heavy, that you chose to reveal this truth to us is not something we want to treat lightly. So we come into it asking that you would teach us, that you would guide us, that you would help us to understand how it speaks into our life so we can speak into the lives of others, and that we would walk out of here today 
with a greater degree of boldness and courage and confidence about who we are, who you declare us to be. We ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen. The purpose of this study is that we would know who God declares us to be, that we would know who we are, and that what God declares us to be is the real deal, and that will affect how you speak into the lives of other people. So in this second week, I'm going to ask you to travel once again with me back to the very ancient days, the days of Genesis, and go with me to Genesis chapter 1, and we'll get to 2. You might remember that we just got three words down last week. I promise you we're going to get a lot further than that this morning. We're going to move pretty quickly through the the account that's in chapter 2 and chapter 3, but let's go into verse 1, or verse 2 of chapter 1 first. The earth was... Now, I promised you we get more than three words down, but here's three words. Let's stop just a minute. Okay, do you see in parentheses, became? In the Hebrew language, the word was is haitach. And so the proper interpretation of was, the earth became formless and void. And this is already making the wheels in your head starting to turn. Like, what is he talking about? Where is this going? The earth became formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. And I want you to get familiar with three Hebrew words this morning. We won't spend a lot of time with them, but they're really significant to what's written in verse 2. They're in your notes this morning, but look at them on the screen. Formless and void is a really significant term that Moses writes about here in the Hebrew language. We've got the word tohu. So formless is tohu. And he's talking about a desolate place, a worthless thing. Notice what's associated with it, confusion, an empty place. And that's just formless. Go with me to the word void. It's bohu, tohu, bohu, to be an empty vacuity, undistinguishable ruin, a void. Where's this going? The earth became an empty vacuity? A place of confusion, link that together with the third Hebrew word, hashek, and this is the word darkness. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and this is a spiritual term. In the Hebrew language, it's not just lights out, but look what it also means, misery, destruction, death, wickedness. How do I put these pieces together? And out of that, God called forth life during the six days of creation? That's what Moses is writing. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And these are really dark descriptors. Help me put the pieces together, especially in light of chapter 2. And I'm going to encourage you later today to read chapter 2 with real deliberation and slow down and just drink it in at the perfection that's described in chapter 2. Because in day 1, God said it's good. In day 2, God said it's good. Day 3, God said it's good. 4, 5, and you get to day 6, and He said, it's not just good. It's very good. Take that thought into chapter 2 with me. It says this in verse 9. Out of the ground, the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food, the tree of life, also in the midst of the garden. We're just going to look at a couple verses in chapter 2 so we can get to chapter 3. But notice how spectacular this is. If you've spent time in chapter 2 before, you know this is a spectacular place. 
It's describing four rivers that are flowing through this region, and they're named for us, and the rivers Pashan, and two of them we recognize, the Tigris and the Euphrates. They're still on planet Earth today. So we know this is a region in the Middle East, in the far east part of the Middle East, and it's hundreds of miles in size. And according to chapter 2, it's rich in gold and in jewels, and it's full of lush vegetation. And look with me at verse 6, a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. So this is more magnificent than anything that Hollywood ever conceived, because God's got an underground sprinkling system built into the planet. And he's watering the planet, meaning there's no rainstorms. There's just God bringing a mist. And this is so magnificent that there's one major difference from every other portion of the Bible. This is the only place in the Bible where you find the complete absence of sin. It hasn't arrived yet. So this is creation perfect. So in light of that, I want you to consider with me Adam and Eve in perfect physical form, meaning perfect muscle structure, perfect teeth, perfect eyes. Adam isn't going out and finding some Rogaine to buy to put his hair back. Eve isn't going to the beautician to treat gray hair. There's no need for contacts. There's no need for braces. Perfect. God said it's very good, and God doesn't make things that are wrong. He makes everything right. So perfect physical form, perfect mental capacity. How do we know that? God brought all the creatures of the earth that he had created before Adam, and whatever Adam named them, that was their name. And God said, that's a good name. Now, in my mental capacity, I might get zebra out. I might come up with giraffe. But what do you do when you come to platypus? How far can you go? How far can your brain go to begin naming even the creatures that still exist on the planet today, which is just a fraction of what used to be here? And whatever name was given to them, that is their name. Imagine the scope of the vocabulary of that person. So perfect physical form, perfect mental form, perfect spiritual form, because they walked with God himself in the cool of the day in the garden. Perfect mental, perfect physical, perfect spiritual relationship. And we're told this in verse 8. The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. So it's not the garden of Eden, it's the garden in Eden. Garden means compound in the Hebrew language. Eden means perfection or beauty. So you've got a compound of beauty in this region that is so incredibly vast and it's protected, and it's this place of pristine beauty, and it's full of bounty, and it's completely untouched, and it is the birthplace of marital intimacy and the birthplace of spiritual intimacy because they're with God, one with God, and Adam and Eve are in paradise. And if you're thinking paradise right now, you're thinking Maui, right? You're thinking Costa Rica, especially on January 20th when it's four above zero outside in Michigan. It's like... I know what paradise looks like. I'm thinking that falls short. But that's the best we've got because of the way the planet is today. This is beyond our description and our imagination. And we know that because of how chapter 2 finishes. Both the man and the woman were naked and they felt no shame. It finishes in chapter 2. That's something you and I have never known. 
None of us wants to sit here naked, physically naked today. We wouldn't like that, and yet they feel it, and they feel no shame. And we don't know how much time elapsed from the sixth day of creation when God said it's very good until chapter 3 begins. We don't know if it's years or days. What is it? But we know it's clearly before the birth of children, and they're an absolute utopia. Here's what we do know. Right around chapter 3, all the way to Revelation chapter 20, another being appears on the scene. Another entity joins them in the garden, and we're told this in chapter 3, verse 1. Now, the serpent, and you see the Hebrew word nakash, I'll explain that in just a minute. The nakash was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. Well, time out. I thought you said everything was perfect. How did that get in there? Where did that come from? Well, let's just back up to where we were last week when we laid the foundation for this. Last week we talked about before God created mankind, He created angels. Michael referred to that just a few minutes ago when he was at the piano. That the angels were there when God brought the earth into the created form and they applauded that. And we understand, according to what we looked at last week, that there's three ranks of angels. There's the messenger angels that deliver information for God. They also serve as guardian angels. And then there's the seraphim who fly with six wings, according to Isaiah. Two, they fly. Two, they cover their eyes. And two, they cover their feet. And then there's the cherubim. And the cherubim are the closest to the throne of God. And they are an awesome spectacle to behold, according to what Ezekiel wrote. And we know this about them. They're bigger, stronger, smarter, faster than us, and they've been around a long, long time, and they study humanity. So you've got these three ranks, and the highest rank is the cherubim, and the name of one of the cherubim is Lucifer. And it's not a bad name, it's a good name. Lucifer actually means star of the morning. You see his name, Halel, in your notes, and you see it on the screen. He's called the bright morning star, the, the bright one. Because he's absolutely perfect in his appearance, flawless. Scripture describes him like a pure diamond. We've never seen anything like that. He's the showroom model. And so God takes him and anoints him and makes him the arch cherub, elevates him. And it says this in Ezekiel 28, 14, you were the anointed cherub who covers I received some questions from individuals this week, both through email and text, about how to understand Ezekiel 28, people who have read it before. And they're trying to make sense out of the fact it's talking about an earthly ruler in verses 1 through 10, the, the prince of Tyre. But in verse 11, it begins talking about the king of Tyre. Rather than bog you down with that, I printed this offering. If you want to grab it on the brown table in the back when you leave today, that's great. It's called The Fall of Satan. Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum wrote it. It's 11 pages long, and there's multiple copies of it back there. Pick one up when you leave this morning. It'll help you understand Ezekiel 28, and why is he describing the fall of Satan in that passage? But here's what we understand. Satan, in his original form, he's one of the cherubs. He's at the throne of God, and he decides to rebel against God. And so Isaiah writes this, Isaiah 14, 12, But you said in your heart, I will raise my throne above the stars of God. And every time you see stars associated with God, that's angels. I will raise my throne above the angels of God. I will make myself like the Most High. And there's the rebellion. And he's not created evil. He's created perfect. He's flawless in his actions. He's flawless in his appearance, and yet he chooses to rebel. 
He has the power of contrary choice. That's how perfect he is. You don't have it. I don't have it. We were born into sin because of what Adam and Eve did. We've only known sin. He didn't. He knew perfection, and he chose to rebel against God. And the rebellion's uncovered because you can't hide things like that from an omniscient God. And so he makes the five I will statements. And last week I told you, you would see Jesus make a statement about this moment in time. Look with me on the screen at Luke 10, 18. And he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Meaning he was there. God the Son, before He became Jesus the man, was there when it happened. And He's also verifying for us there is a real Satan. And He really fell. And it doesn't say that Lucifer fell. It says Satan fell. Why is that significant? Because there's a change of identity. God always changes the name to fit the character. He's now the adversary of God. That's what Satan means, the adversarial. God changes the name. He changed Abraham's name. He was known as Abram. He became Abraham. Why? Because he could be the father of many nations. He changed Peter's name. Peter was Simon Barjona. Now you'll be known as Peter the Rock. He changed your name. You're now known as the sons and daughters of God if you're in a relationship with him through Jesus Christ. You're the children of God. He changes the name to match the character So we're seeing that sin is older than the garden. Sin actually originates with Lucifer. It didn't originate on the planet. That's why Jesus calls him the father of lies. And so successful was his rebellion that he brings a third of the population of the angels that were created with him in the rebellion. We call them demons. So the demons that we know of are fallen angels who had a lot of information available to them, but they chose to rebel. And since the fall of Satan, since the rebellion of the demons, throughout human history, it's been move, counter move, move, counter move, like a giant chess game, God moving his plan forward and Satan trying to corrupt God's plan. And behind governments and behind individuals, you find Satan trying to do his best to thwart God's purposes. So let's go back to Jesus' statement. I was watching when Satan fell from heaven like lightning. And you have to ask the question, okay, fell to where? I would argue with you when you open up your Bible to Genesis chapter 3, the rebellion has already occurred. It's already taken place. I would actually go one step further and say between Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 and Genesis chapter 1 verse 2, when it says formless and void and darkness is over the planet, you're looking at the wickedness because of the fall of Satan. Regardless of where you land on that issue, what we understand is Satan moves to target and he takes on God's highest created being on this planet. He goes after mankind. Look with me again at verse 1 of chapter 3. The Nakesh was more crafty than any beast of the field. And hopefully when you're thinking crafty, you're not thinking Hobby Lobby, all right? It's not that kind of crafty. We're talking shrewd. Not shrewd in a good way. Shrewd in a really devious way. So check this. You're in the garden. You're Adam and Eve, and things are good. You've got an underground sprinkling system you don't even have to turn on. Birds are singing. You can watch the animals walking. We're told there's creeping things in the Scriptures, and that's just talking about animals with little short legs. They're down low to the earth. 
Then there's the really tall creatures and there's the creatures in the water and they're all moving around and you've named them all and you're in relationship and then you've got this Nakesh that appears on the scene, a reptilian-like creature. He's part of the created order. He's one of the created beasts. And you can assume he's upright. And Nakesh actually means covered with scales. But apparently beautiful in its form and moving freely and flowing through the garden, but not crawling. There's no curse that's happened yet. So we've got this one who's a pre-cursed creature with personality and with an ability to speak, and not just speak, but speak with intelligence. Check this. Eve is not surprised when the Nakesh comes up to her, whatever this creature is, and it starts a conversation. And he said to the woman, verse 1, He said to the woman, indeed, has God said that you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? I want you to follow the flow of this approach. The approach is to get Eve to question God. Why? Because if you can get somebody to question an authority, you might be able to lead them to distrust. And distrust can lead to disobey. And if Satan can get you to believe that God can't be trusted, score! That's the goal. So here's the translation the way I think it played out. Just interpretation according to Mark, okay? So, Eve, I guess you can't really have everything that you want to have. Like, he's holding back from you. You want to put it in modern-day terms, that's the way he's doing it. This is like a, a catapult launch for the first time in human history. The darkness of spiritual warfare has been released He's suggesting that what God declares as truth is subject to negotiation. That God's word can be challenged, and so he launches the attack with this. Eve, let's just talk about how you feel. How do you feel that he's holding back from you? So he begins with the idea that you and I have the right to modify what God declares to be true. I hope I get an amen on a new hope on this one. God's word is not subject to human judgment. It's not. God's Word can't be modified just because we don't like what it says. And the fact that he introduces it so subtly by saying, has God said, is the giveaway. Because in chapter 2, verse 1, 2, 5, 7, 9, 17, 19, and 21, it says, the Lord God, 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 capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, in other words, Yahweh. The Lord God. But Satan won't use the word Lord because Lord connotates authority. Lord puts emphasis on sovereignness. Satan won't go there. It's God's authority that got him kicked out of heaven in the first place. So he focuses Eve on what she doesn't have, and he sets her up for an evaluation by doing this. Isn't this a bit punitive, Eve? God's so small. What he's holding back from you. The fact that God gave them everything is tossed aside as insignificant because Satan doesn't want you to think about what you do have and what he's blessed you with. He goes after that one tree in your life that you don't have. It would be so much better for your future if you just had blank and you fill in the blank, whatever the blank is. Watch her response, verse 2. The woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden... We may eat, 
But from the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. And from this moment on, he has her. She's headed for disaster. Even with complete use of mental capacity, perfectly very good from God, she's still susceptible to the intellect and the deception of Satan. He's that smart. He hears her and he pounces How? By blatantly negating God. He lies about the very thing that God just declared to be truth. Watch verse 4. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. Liar! Have you ever wanted to call Satan a liar? Here's your chance. Let's do it on three. One, two, three. Liar! You guys said that with some gusto. Good for you. That's who he is. He lies to you about who you are. God declares you to be saved, redeemed, made righteous, forgiven. Satan comes along and says, you think that's true? Could he really forgive you? Does he know what you did? And he just keeps throwing it up because he's called the accuser of the brethren. Liar. That's who he is. And the ultimate deception is this. There will not be a judgment for disobeying God, Eve. You don't have to obey what he said. You can do whatever you want. You won't die. So Satan has just called the Lord God liar. Go with me forward in verse 5. For God knows that in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You will be like God. Now that is a lucrative offer. Wow, I've got everything and I can have that? Who wouldn't be susceptible to that temptation? Notice Satan is not placing the fruit in her hand. He's not shoving it in her mouth. It's very, very subtle, and I bet you've seen this in your life. God's holding you back. Your future would be so much better if you just had sex, power, money, prestige, What if you just had that? How good would your life be? Watch what James writes in James 1.15. When lust is conceived, it brings forth sin. So the seed is planted and is planted in her mind. It moves from the mind to the emotion, from the emotion to the will. And what does the will do? The will drives you to action. And she reaches and takes what has been tempted to her. And it seems incredibly good. Verse 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. I'm asking you right now, New Hope, where is the actual failure? Is it the moment that she reaches for the fruit? Is that the actual failure? Or is the failure in the fact that she failed to believe what God had declared to be true? In the moment that you believe something other than what God has declared, there's failure. And we know that sin is not content to party alone. I've witnessed that my entire life. It always wants to drag more people along to the party. And so verse 6, part B, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. I've often wondered if there was some kind of scream in eternity at that point. Did the earth rumble? I don't know. I'll have to check in eternity one day. But what I know is it's the same garden. It's the same sky. 
it's the same spouse, and suddenly and explosively into a world that was so pure, it's now filled with perversion and evil thoughts, and they are drenched in sin, and it drips from them. And they don't know what to do with it because they've never felt this way before. They reek of corruption. Chapter 3, verse 7, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. And no matter what regret they have in that moment, they cannot unring the bell. I didn't mean it! Let's go back! I want to go back to what it used to be. You can't. The decision's been made, and they feel exposed and polluted, and they need to hide. And Adam's response, why the fruit is still dripping from his chin, is to run and hide at the sound of God as soon as he hears him. And this breaks my heart because they don't turn to God. What do we do when we sin? We don't immediately want to turn to God. We want to run the opposite direction. So God has to be the one to initiate and go after them because they don't want to run to God. They want to go the other way. Instead, they resort to human capacity. And here you find in Genesis the seed of religion. Man-made religion. Tries to fix the problem with man-made solution and man's activities. And so they, they get out a sewing machine and they begin taking fig leaves and they try and cover their private parts because they know they've been exposed. Go forward with me to verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool. And by the way, that means the afternoon. That's the wind of the day. That's what it's talking about, the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. No one has to tell them that they no longer qualify to be in God's presence. They instinctively know it. No one has to hold up a sign and say, you sinners. They absolutely are aware of what they've done because of the guilt. And so God's response, verse 9, then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? So they're desperate to cover their body, but they can't cover their sin so they pull out the fig leaves, and the fig leaves don't work, and people try and do this all the time. I know I'm not good with God. Maybe if I just work at the rescue mission. Maybe if I just give enough money. Maybe if I just, maybe then God will like me. And we're constantly coming up with solutions to try and sew our own fig leaves together. And when that doesn't work, they go to hiding mode. And you can't hide from an omniscient God, so they have to come out from behind the tree. And verse 12 says, the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. <laughs> oh, man. It's like so funny. And yet it's so sad. The immediate response is to shift the blame. How shocked do you think Eve is in this moment that her husband just threw her under the bus? What's up with that? We did this together. Here's why this is so incredibly sad. That had never existed before. It was the birthplace of marital intimacy. There had been no corruption. There had been no busted relationship. There had been no failure whatsoever. And when the hiding doesn't work, they come out and they start blaming. And he says, it's not my fault. I went to sleep single. I woke up married. You made her. 
It's your fault. And the conversation as you study it becomes incredibly evasive and deceptive, and it tells you a lot about the nature of depravity. What are we really like on the inside once sin enters the world? And you see it right here. There's no longer any holiness in them. And so they fall. And along with them, this entire planet is exposed to an internal collapse. And if you've ever wondered, why did my aunt die with cancer? Why is there so much disease? Why is there crime? Why is there rape? Why is there broken relationships? Why is there corruption? It's right there. It's here. This is where it started. This wasn't God's plan. This wasn't the intent. They fell, and along with them, they dragged the entire planet along with them. How do we know that? Look with me at Romans 8.20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him. And him, by the way, church, is God but because of God who subjected it. Why? In hope. God does this only in hope. In hope that there would be creation set free one day. That's why Jesus said, Behold, I've come to make all things new. If you're in me, I make you a new creation. God does this in hope because sin infects everything. Where there was no corruption, suddenly there's disease, there's death, there's violence. And thousands of years later, You find an old man by the name of Paul having to sit down with ink and papyrus and begin writing the book of Romans to explain this. Look with me on the screen, Romans 5.12, through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all. So this avalanche of suffering is unleashed on this planet and it buries all of creation in the debris of sin. If you've ever wondered, why why would a good God let suffering exist? Well, God didn't design it. This is sin entering the world. And so Paul writes this in chapter 8, verse 22, For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. From this moment in time, life on our planet is defined by defect and decay and betrayal and war and death. And this week in your study guide, I hope you pick one of those up on your way out today. If you weren't here last week, make sure you grab one. Rich asked questions in there. Pastor Rich wrote things like, why is everything broken? And you read about that. And and then he writes about Noah and why the flood had to happen and, and the Tower of Babel. And is Christianity just another religion, another system of works? With all that in mind, you find something remarkable going on in chapter 3. Wedged right in here between verse 6 and verse 21 is the first appearance of grace. Now, we're coming into the time where I would invite your questions. If you have some that you want to ask, make sure you text them in and we'll get to them. But here, I want you to see the grace component. Fast forward to verse 21. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and clothed them. He didn't have to do that. God could have left them in their nakedness or with their fig leaves that would have wore out in the first rainstorm. The religion of man, man man-made religion, trying to make themselves good with God, is going to sow fig leaves every single time. We're going to try and do enough things to make ourselves right, but if you're a believer in Jesus and you've walked in grace, and I know there are many of you here today, 
You're walking in grace. You've got a biblical definition. You understand. You've learned it has to be God who deals with my brokenness. He's got to be the one who covers me. You can attempt all you want to cover yourself in your own leaves, and many people try and do it. They're doing it all around the planet today. Many of your friends try and do that. In the end, they're going to discover that it requires God. God only can cover you. Only He can step in. He has to clothe us. And immediately we see, in order for God to cover us, to deal with the failure of sin, there has to be a shedding of blood. And right here in verse 21, you've got the first death. An animal had to die for the skin to be produced, for God to cover His creation. And so we find the first sacrifice, if you will, the first shedding of blood, because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins, Scripture says. So we've got something that had to die because of someone else's suffering, a precursor of Christ. I I bet you're chewing on some of this stuff right now. I, I bet some questions have popped in your mind. Do we have a few that you guys want to put up on the screen? Do all angels have contrary choice? Absolutely. So perfect, contrary choice. The holy angels had the choice whether or not to rebel. The third who chose to rebel had the power of contrary choice, and they joined Lucifer in the rebellion and left. The next question that comes after that typically is, so can they still rebel? The decision's been made. They've decided to be holy and belong to God. So you will see the holy angels one day in heaven when you step into eternity, those who chose to not rebel. They had all the information available to them, and they made their decision. Let's go to the next question. Was Satan cast to earth before the six days of creation? It appears to me that that is exactly what happened in between verse 1 and verse 2. When you're looking at tohu bohu, and when God says, I was there when Satan fell to earth like lightning, I think that's right in the place. Because this formless, shapeless place was void. And that's going to trigger more questions, I know, because it did in the other services too. So if that's your question, come up and see me afterwards, and I'll be happy to talk with you. Last week after the um, 9 o'clock service, I met somebody out in the hallway and said, who thinks of these questions? Who's coming up with these things? The great insights, I appreciate you raising them, because a lot of people are thinking these questions. Let's go to the next one. If God loves us so much to sacrifice His Son then why did he decide not to protect us from Satan from the beginning? Well, we'll end with an easy one. Thanks. <laughs> See what I mean about people saying, who thinks of these things? Well, everybody thinks these questions. Some don't articulate them, but a lot of us think that. Like, okay, why didn't he just scratch the whole thing? If, if Lucifer rebelled first, why not just start over there? And here's the response I gave last week when that was asked, and maybe you weren't here, but here's the response again, and you can back this up with Scripture. God does love you so much that He wanted His entire plan to work out. But you might remember that I said at that time that we vastly misunderstand the glory of God and what He does to obtain glory. So the angels were created with contrary choice so they could willingly obey God. You have the choice whether or not to follow God, and in doing that, you give Him great glory. 
If you're in a relationship with a person right now, do you want to be in that relationship because that person is forced into that relationship or because they choose to be in it out of love? Well, there you understand God's glory in that he has a created planet of which some choose to give him glory and follow him with their life and exalt Jesus. So when the greater, the angels, who are bigger, stronger, smarter, faster than us, who are in rebellion against him, choose to not give him glory, and the lesser creature, who is under the bigger, stronger, smarter, faster, choose to give him glory, does God get greater glory out of that when the greater is in rebellion against him, when the lesser chooses to follow him? I know it's a complicated way of saying it, but just chew on it. God gets great glory. So if God loves us so much to sacrifice his son, then why did he decide not to protect us from Satan in the beginning? God's got a big, big plan of which we get a little bitty glimpse. And he chooses to let us go through what we're going through because he gets great glory out of it. And many people who are new to church think, wow, that is really self-centered. Like who would want to follow a God like that? I would say you greatly misunderstand the glory of God who does love you so much that he sent his one and only son to forgive us of all of our sin. There's no easy answer to that, but that's the best way I can explain it. Let's see if there's just one more, Derek. Hopefully this is easy. Oh, no. <laughs> I can kick myself for saying one more. Okay, evolution and DNA evidence is suggesting that humanity can't be traced back to a single set of parents, Adam and Eve. This would thus imply that Adam and Eve's story is not to be taken literally. Thoughts? Absolutely. Two weeks ago, there was a great article published out of Sweden, one of, one of the world's foremost evolutionists who has traced genetic DNA as far back as he possibly can. You need to bring up the article and read it. It was put in Newsweek, it was put in Time, and then it came out in the New York Times the next day, in which this individual, taking a lot of flack because he's an atheist, is saying, you know what? It actually points back to an original man and woman. It actually roots back to an original man and woman as the starter of the entire population on the planet. He closed the article by saying, now, lest you think I'm trying to authenticate the Bible and Adam and Eve's story, I'm not. But he said, I can't argue with the evidence. The evidence shows that it all goes back to an original couple. So I actually would argue with the premise of the question. The more DNA is being explored and the more evolution is being explored, the more it's being exposed as it's not actually reliable science. And I would challenge you to read that story. If you want to see me about the title of it, come to me after the service and I'll give it to you. Okay, on that happy note, I want to send you out the door with a really good thought. I told you I would do that each week after the Q&A. Our ancient parents discovered something. Regardless of where you land on the creation story, they discovered that you cannot walk in sin and walk with God. So God has to send them out of the garden, if you go back and read the story, because God and sin don't match up. Yet the Lord God is so determined that we would dwell with him that he determines to cover us, if you will. 
He wants to deal with our nakedness. So at God's initiative, the Lamb of God is sacrificed. Once again, God walks among his creation and he makes an offer. If you believe in what I'm offering you, I'll forgive your sins and you will dwell with me again. So look with me at this verse. It's very promising. John 14, 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him, and check this out, and make our abode with him. Based on what? Based on a relationship with God and the discipleship factor of keeping his word. Anybody loves me and they keep my word, I'm going to live with that person. That is a huge commitment on God's part. And God doesn't lie, right, New Hope? So he made a commitment, and he said, if you're good with that, I will dwell with you. If you're new to church this morning, and and if you feel that God's calling you to believe this, let me assure you, God will be the first one to say, I forgive your sins, your past, your present, and your future, sins that you haven't even committed yet, based on your confession of faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, That's a deal worth taking if you believe what God has recorded. And what that does for you is it makes you the sons and the daughters of God again in Christ Jesus, no longer separated. I hope you go out the door this morning with a degree of confidence and encouragement that what God declares over you to be true is really true. It's Satan who lies to you. So I want to pray for you that way. Pray that you take on the weak that way. Let's pray together. God, I pray your blessing upon these who have decided to be here and those who have dialed in online and are are hearing God's word declared in such a way that they have to do something with it. For those who believe, Father, and I know that's many of us this morning, I pray that there will be a greater degree of encouragement and boldness and confidence to take on this week and to speak proudly of what we know to be true, that you have declared us to be your sons and daughters. Praise you for that reality. For my friends here who may not yet believe, God, be very close to them. Continue to work on them with your Holy Spirit. Comfort them. And where necessary, God, prod that the right questions would be asked. You are, you are saying that we're that precious to you. Send us out now, God, with your protection, with your hand upon us, and we ask for that in Jesus' matchless name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Have a great week, New Hope.